We've been going through the book of Revelation and we're going to continue that study. And if you want to turn to Revelation chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the church uh, of the living dead, the church of Sardis. And if you're helped by notes, you'll find that uh, there are notes in your bulletin and you can follow along with those. But let's read the text first and then we'll look more deeply into it. Revelation chapter 3 verse 1. To the church of Sardis, write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. But if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will like them be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we come to you this morning and we, we really delight to be in your presence and to have fellowship together like this is just a great honor. We pray, Father, as we study your word that you would open our hearts. Father, that our spirits would be completely open to you, receptive and responsive. Holy Spirit, I pray that my words would not be my own, Father, but they would be only yours. And that you speak to us as you do, Father, that we would receive them as your words. And Father, that we would respond in such a way that would honor you and bring glory to your name. And so God, thank you. Thank you for your deep love that's so thorough and so complete and that reaches past the heavens and into our hearts and teaches us what you want from us and how we can walk with you and how we can be blessed and how we can have eternal life. And so Father, we're so grateful. And we give you praise and honor and glory and say thank you in advance for what you're going to do here this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and everyone said, Amen. Amen. I've often wondered what it would be like if our lives were turned inside out. If what was on the exterior was on the interior and what was on the interior was on the exterior. If people could really see what you were like and what I was like. I mean, our real inner person, what we are like in private, what our thoughts are and what our deeds are when no one is looking. If everyone could really see one another, I wonder what life would be like. It might be a little frightening. And fortunately or unfortunately, depending on your point of view, our inner man is hidden from the sight of human eyes. But it's not hidden from God. I've heard it said that An enemy will multiply kisses, but a friend will wound. It's from Proverbs. A more contemporary way of saying it is that uh, an enemy will come and he'll stab you in the back, but a friend will come and stab you in the front. Nothing hidden, just complete honesty, complete truth. As we look at this uh, letter to the church of Sardis, it is a scathing letter. It is full of of correction. In fact, it's the only church where Jesus has nothing positive to say. But Jesus 
loves this church so much that he's willing to tell the church the truth. One of the things that I value in friendship is a person who is willing to tell me the truth about myself. And I have friends like that and I count myself very blessed and fortunate that God would give me men in my life in particular who are willing to come to me and say, Bob, this isn't right. Or Bob, this isn't correct in your life. Or Bob, have you thought about this? Or Bob, are you really responding in an appropriate way? And when somebody comes to me and stabs me in the front like that, it's like, oh, it hurts. But Proverbs says that a wise man will receive a correction like that and benefit from it. The thing that's worse is if you have no one at all in your life who is willing to tell you the truth. And in the love of Christ, in his passion for his church, and I would say for his passion for you today, a demonstration of that is that Jesus is one who will speak the truth and yet he does so in love with a purpose of reconciling and bringing us into a fuller and more meaningful and deeper relationship with himself. And that certainly was true with the church of Sardis. Now just a little background about Sardis. Sardis was exceedingly wealthy in its past. It was very effective in the woolen and textile and jewelry industries. But everything in Sardis was history. Everything that they pointed to as the greatness of their city have long since passed. And you might ask why. Well, Sardis was built on an acropolis, on a hill. And the city was surrounded by 1,500 foot sheer cliffs. The only way into the city was through this ravine, a narrow ravine that was easily guarded. Now Sardis, because of its tremendous strategic location militarily, grew overconfident. They felt like, you know, we'll never be defeated. There's no one that can possibly scale these walls of these sheer cliffs and we are guarding the entryway through this ravine and uh, there's just no way we're ever going to be overtaken. Well, in 549 BC, some Midianites came, kind of like Midianite Navy SEALs, came in the dark of night and they scaled those walls that no one thought could be scaled. And they came in over the top of the walls where there was no guards, no one watching, no one posted, no one awake. And they came into the city and came to the gate and opened the gate from the inside, flung the gate open. And of course, you can imagine the surprise of the sentries who were posted outside the gate trying to protect the city. And then the Midianites swarm in and, and sack the city. Now you think after the city of Sardis collected itself some years later and retook the city that they would have figured out we need to have guards and sentries posted on these walls. Well, a couple hundred years go by and they become complacent again and they became overconfident again. And in 200 BC, some Greeks came and they did the very same thing in the dark of night. They stole up and climbed the cliffs of Sardis, came over the wall, opened the gate. To the surprise of the sentries, the gates flung open from the inside and the Greeks came in and sacked the city. Now you're thinking, well, why is this important? Why are you telling us this? Well, I'm sharing these things with you because there's a history with the city that parallels the ministry of the church within Sardis. You see, Sardis in its beginnings was a very prosperous church. It was wealthy spiritually. They were doing the right things. They were honoring God. They were full of the Spirit. They were teaching the Word of God. They were bearing fruit in every good work. They were reproducing themselves. The church was growing. But somewhere along the way, over the years, the church became overconfident. And they felt like this growth and the expansion of the ministry was somehow due to their efforts. 
And they became not dependent on God, but, but kind of self-satisfied with what they had accomplished. And in time, they, they stopped watching carefully for the enemy's attacks. And somewhere along the way, Satan and his legions began in the dark of night to scale the walls of their hearts and entered the city of the temple of God where the temple, the Bible says in us now, the temple is our lives, our heart, and the Holy Spirit lives in this temple. And opening the gate from the inside and sacking the Christian experience and the Christian witness of the church of Sardis. So Jesus addresses the problems of this church that had become complacent, the church that had lost its vision, the church that had lost its connection with its head, Jesus Christ. And he begins to address the church, if you're looking and want to follow along in in the scriptures. He says, These are the words of him, referring to himself, Jesus Christ, who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now we know from chapter 1 of Revelation that these seven spirits are a a reference to the Holy Spirit, to the sevenfold nature of the Spirit that uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 through 5 references. And so Jesus right away begins to identify one of the two significant problems that the church of Sardis was facing, the deficiencies. The first is that they were lacking the Spirit. They had continued on in ministry. All the ministry had continued that was going on, the meetings, the the get-togethers, the the car washes, the fundraisers for the church, all of these different kinds of things. I guess it would be chariot washes, horse washes. But the fact is, is all these events continued. But the Spirit of God, the power, was no longer in the church of Sardis. And then he says, I am the one who holds the seven stars in my hand. And again, referencing chapter 1, we're told what the meaning of that term is, the seven stars. It's either they're messengers, either angels or pastors or bishops within the churches. But the responsibility of these messengers was to proclaim and to present the unvarnished word of God. And somewhere along the way, the church of Sardis had moved away from the truth of Scripture. Maybe, maybe it was just stabbing them a little too close to the heart. Maybe it was a little too uncomfortable. Maybe they themselves, individually, and then eventually corporately, weren't even really reading the word during the week. And they lost their appetite for the things of God, but they still enjoyed the socializing and the the business networking that can take place in a church. And so Jesus says, I'm the one that has the Spirit. I'm the one that has the seven stars in my hand who are to present the Word of God. And I'm also the one who knows your deeds. It's interesting that no matter what we might try to hide from God, He knows everything. What's invisible to you in my life is completely clear to God. And what I can't see in your life, God can see without any difficulty at all. Now for some of us, and maybe at particular times in our life, we're not exactly thrilled that everybody, or that God can see so penetratingly into our life. But I want to encourage you that to know that God knows you and knows the, the wickedness that sometimes is in our heart, the thoughts that go through that I'm like wondering where in the world did that come from? How awful to even think a thought like that. Or actions that we've committed that we know are wrong. My encouragement to you is that God knows your deeds and in spite of the fact that he knows every evil thing that you've ever done as well as every good thing you've ever done, he absolutely is wild about you. He is in love with you. He thinks about you night and day and 
wants the best for you. His plans are good for your life. In spite of the fact that he knows everything about us. What's so wonderful about Jesus knowing everything about us is that he is the only one that can fix us. He is the only one that has the power or the capacity to transform us into the image of his son. And not only is he willing to do that, but he desires to do it. And he has the power to do it. And so God knowing you is a blessing. It's a great gift that God would know you so intimately and be so committed to you, so thoroughly devoted to your benefit. And so this same Jesus who knows you knew the church of Sardis. And he says, I know your deeds. And unfortunately, as I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, this is the one church where Jesus has nothing positive to say. And in spite of that, he still loves them. He still loves this church. And he wants them to grow and he wants them to come back. He begins by saying that I know your deeds, that you have a reputation of being alive, yet you are dead. This is, I I can't think of anything worse than to tell somebody this spiritually. Oh boy, you seem like you're on fire for Christ, but I know what you're really like, you're dead. That is, I can't think of anything, how could you say anything more direct than that? Oh, stabbed in the front. Painful. It hurts. But evidently it was true. They had a reputation of being alive, but they were dead. There was a form of godliness in their worship and gatherings, but not the power There was an appearance of life, but not the reality of life. C.S. Lewis explains in The Conflict, The Four Loves, he says, anyone who has ever taught or attempted to lead others knows the tendency in all of us toward exaggerating our depth of character while treating leniently our flaws. He says the Bible calls this tendency hypocrisy. We consciously or subconsciously put forward a better image of ourselves than really exists. The outward appearance of our character and the inner reality that only God, we, and perhaps our family members know do not match. Hypocrisy in the Greek is actually an interesting word because it is translated in our our culture as actor. It means someone who plays a role. So when you are acting and performing on stage, you are acting in character. It may not even be what you're really like in person, but for the purpose of the play, you are acting in character. And what Jesus says about hypocrisy is that we are acting in character, not with what we're really like, but with some image of what we think other people in the church are wanting from us or expecting from us. And what Jesus says is, I don't want any actors in church. I want men and women who are truly on fire for Christ. I want men and women who are genuine. And somewhere along the way, as can happen, the church of Sardis slipped away from a genuine relationship with Jesus and were still trying to behave as if they had that intimate walk with God. And some of us do that too. You know, we don't want to completely lay it all out in front of the church, in front of other people and say, man, I'm just hurting. I'm struggling. I was in sin this week. I I did some really wrong things and I need to repent. I need to confess it to someone. And instead we kind of hide it and we try to pretend that everything's fine and that we're okay. And God says that's hypocrisy. And so it leads down eventually to a very ugly path of actually convincing ourselves that's what the Christian life is about, is kind of play acting and yet living a very different lifestyle in our private life. Jesus says that Their reputation of being alive was only what man saw. 
man looked at it and they said, hey, what a reputation. Look at this church. It's growing. It's active. There's all kinds of stuff happening. Boy, they, do, they, they have meetings. They got meetings every night of the week. They got all kinds of stuff happening. That was man's evaluation of the church of Sardis. But Jesus Christ's evaluation, who knows everything, had a completely different conclusion about this church. He said they were dead. Just below the surface of their hypocrisy was a deadness, an inner decay in their souls and ministry. In, in, in 2 Timothy, Paul talks about it in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 5. He says they have a form of godliness, but because of their failure to walk with the Lord, they were denying the real power of God through their hypocrisy. In other words, they were Christians by name only. There's a poet who has captured this hypocrisy in a very short little few phrases here, and I want to read this to you. He says, Outwardly splendid as of old, inwardly lifeless, dead and cold her force and fire all spent and gone like the dead moon she still shines on this is a reference to the church this is what he's writing about now there are four things I think that mark something that's living and I've actually um, uh, drawn this from, uh, uh, from Skip Heitzig who is another Calvary Chapel pastor a very gifted teacher and he said that there are four signs of, of something being alive, an organism being alive. The first is, is that it's interdependent on other cells. In other words, everything that's living, in fact, our own bodies, but in, in nature, in any organism, there's a whole series of cells and they're interdependent and they work together to fulfill their purpose. And in the body of Christ, we often think of ourselves as kind of a corporate unity when we gather together, but, but the health of our body is dependent on the individual health of the cells within the church. And so it's so important that as we look at having a healthy body of believers, a church that honors God, each of us have to pursue being healthy in our own relationship with God. We need to be interdependent, not you know independent. The, the North American Christian lifestyle is a very independent lifestyle, and that's not biblical at all. It's, it's unheard of in the Word of God for Christians to operate that way. In fact, I think it's impossible to be a, a God-honoring believer and be completely independent of everyone else, just attending church on Sunday. I just don't think it's possible. And so the first sign of a living organism is it's interdependent and there's cells and the cells are healthy. The second thing is that the, they're living organisms uh, if they need food. They need some sort of, of nourishment. Now the church of Sardis somewhere along the way stopped being nourished from the word of God. They were eating fluff. They were eating candy. I don't know what they were getting, but it wasn't the word of God. And as believers, we need to be feeding on the Word of God. And forgive me if I stab you in the front here a few times, but the church needs to be full of men and women who are regular in the Word of God. That you are daily being fed from the Scriptures and you are having daily communion with your Father and with your Savior and with the Holy Spirit. And I would go so far as to say, without that, you cannot be a healthy Christian. You cannot be a healthy cell within the body of Christ if you aren't regularly in the Word. If you're not, ask God for the hunger. He will give it to you. If you need help knowing how to study the Word and have a meaningful, quiet time, we can teach you. We can train you. All you have to do is ask. But that's another sign of a healthy organism. The third is that it grows. If something's alive and doing well and prospering, it's going to grow. Now, for the believer, we need to be able to look back three months before and say, boy, I can see progress I've made in my life. 
either in overcoming sin or in growing in some particular character quality. But for a believer to be able to look back six months and two years and five years and not really see any significant change, that is not a healthy sign for a Christian. And so if you're a believer, a healthy sign of your Christian life is that your progress will be evident to everyone around you. And that progress can only take place if you're intimately related to Christ through the Word of God and filled by His power in His Spirit and fulfilling His purpose in your life. The last mark of something that's living is it reproduces. Now somewhere along the way, the church of Sardis stopped reproducing. And it, it's not hard to understand why. If, if there's no word and no power of the Spirit, that church is going to start to fail and flag and shrink. Now in the spiritual dimension, in terms of our Christian lives, the Bible says that if you are a healthy Christian, you should be reproducing yourself. Forgive me again. Here comes the knife in the front. The Bible says that we should be reproducing ourselves. Now, many Christians think that the Christian life is about attending church and going to this ministry and that program and doing this and that. When in reality, I can tell you exactly what your purpose in life is. Some of you I have just met today. Some of you I've known for three years. It makes no difference. I can tell you what your purpose in life is. I can tell you what God's will for your life is. It's that you would be a reproducing believer. It's that you would be taking under your wing a younger brother if you're a man or a younger woman if you're a woman and teaching them how to walk with God, how to love Him, how to study the Bible, how to lead someone to Christ, how to share your testimony, how to overcome sin, how to have your priorities shifted away from things that are fruitless and bring death to things that bring life. You see, we need people like that in our lives to nurture us. Forgive me again, here comes the knife in love. But men, where is your man? Where is the man in your life that you have taken under your wing and you are systematically and strategically and lovingly discipling? Most men don't have someone like that. But I pray that as the knife goes in, that the Spirit of the Lord would inspire you and you would say, I don't care how long you've been a Christian, you'd say, you know, I've known this for many years, I need to be doing this. By God's grace, Holy Spirit, fill me. I will, by your power, fulfill the commission you have for my life. Women, where's your woman? Where's that woman or young lady that you are investing your life in, that you are taking under your wing and you're teaching how to be a godly woman? Where's the woman that you are saying to them and you're saying follow me as I follow the example of Christ and God will bless your life you see the church to a large degree has failed in this mission of disciple making and yet it's the one command that's clearest of all regarding our mission I encourage you rather than feeling bad about any of these things or guilty is I'd encourage you to say thank you Holy Spirit that you've got these things in the word of God that you love me so much you're willing to stab me in the front that I might be changed that I might bear fruit that I might be living the abundant life instead of kind of just living a nominal Christian life if you will live this kind of life I guarantee you your excitement for Christ your passion for the word your love for prayer is going to go through the roof but if you are not reproductive what's the purpose? except just kind of feeding yourself and well I'm not really hungry today and don't really need any more answers I've got no questions and 
But when you're reproducing your life in someone else, man, you're on your knees, you're begging God for that person's growth and you're asking that God would protect them from sin and from falling away and you're just passionate. You're wanting the best for that person. Those are signs of something that's living. And these are things that the church of Sardis was lacking. Now Jesus in verse 2 begins to lay out for the church how they can correct their problem. You know, I find it extremely encouraging that in spite of the fact that God identifies my problem, He doesn't just say, I don't know what can be done for you. I don't think anything can be done for you. You, You're just kind of a mess. There's no hope. To the contrary, Jesus gives very specific instructions on how the church can be revitalized. Even though they're so close to death, He tells them what they can do. In verse 2, He says, Wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. So the first thing that Jesus says is, wake up, be watchful, be vigilant. Again, an interesting choice of words, knowing the history of Sardis, who had lost all because of their failure to be vigilant. Somewhere along the way, this church was no longer in a battle in the heavenly realms. In fact, that's one thing that I find encouraging. When I get attacked or I, I find the enemy oppressing me in some way or I see it happening with other people, I'm thinking, wow, we're, we're hitting a nerve here somewhere. You know, the enemy is upset. He's trying to attack the work of God. What I fear more than that is when no one is ever suffering. No one is ever having difficulties. No one is having problems. No one is, is, is being spiritually in, in a spiritual warfare. Because that was the condition of Sardis. They were so benign, so non-threatening that Satan just said, look, they're killing themselves. Let's not waste any energy there. So it's a, it's a marvelous thing, though difficult, when we as individual Christians face struggles of various kinds because the Lord is using that to build us up and to strengthen us. But Jesus says, wake up, wake up. Arise from your slumber. And he says, strengthen what remains. This word means to make stable or firm once again, something that had become unstable. It carries with it the idea of urgency. In other words, do it now before it's too late. You see, Jesus, do you see his heart here? He's not condemning. He's telling the truth and he's saying, this is how you can come out of that emptiness and that death, that decay that's taking place in your heart. And he says, Go back and strengthen what remains. And by the way, what remains is almost ready to die itself. Evidently, there was some vestige of spiritual vitality left, but this patient was in critical condition on life support. I remember when my son, Johnny, uh, became ill about two years ago. He had ITP, and uh, most people had never even heard of it, but it's where your body begins to go into overdrive with your white blood cells, countering a virus that's there, but in the process it begins to attack your platelets as well. They're not quite sure how it happens or why it happens, but the net result is that the body has no capacity to, uh, to stem any kind of bleeding or, or bruising or anything of that nature. And so, but my son is just fine, you know, he's happy playing outside, but we started noticing these little bruises all over his body that got into big bruises and his whole body was just bruised everywhere. And we became very concerned, of course, and we took him to the hospital and they did some tests on him and they said, you know, you need to take him home and you need to come right back right away and get on a, a flight from here to Oahu, an emergency flight, medevac him over to Oahu. 
because he could die even now between now and the time that you have him here by the time you get him to the hospital he may not live and I'm thinking to myself I'm on the plane with my son it's in the middle of the night and I'm on the plane and he's looking around and he's saying daddy look at that look at that look at this I mean you know I'm thinking my son I could be losing him right here in front of me any moment if his head is hit or he begins to hemorrhage in his brain there would be no way to stop the bleeding and he would die and I'm thinking how much like Sardis was my, like my son there was a, a tremendous critical problem taking place but the church of Sardis is like man aren't we a cool church isn't this wonderful man look around look at what God is doing and all the while Jesus says is you are on life support and you are about to die so we have to be so careful as a church that we have a correct evaluation of our lives and that when Jesus stabs us in the front that we not turn away from it but we respond and respond to the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus also says that I found, your, I found incomplete your works, not perfect or, or imperfect. And I'm thinking to myself, in what sense are they incomplete? Well, I think in two ways. One is that their deeds are incomplete. In other words, they're not serving the Lord. You know, they're serving themselves. They've got their house going. They've got their cars going, their chariots, their horses. They've got their stables. They're, they're like getting totally buffed out. Their house is looking great. Their life is looking great. And all the while, Jesus says, I, I, where are your deeds that are prompted by love. Where, where is your desire to serve and to minister to other people? But I also think it was their motives that were deficient. You know, in the last 10 years or so, we've had a real um, movement of volunteerism in our country. And I think the reason is clear. It's not that all of a sudden people are loving and giving. It's because people are running up against the emptiness of money. They're running against the, uh, up against the emptiness and hitting a wall of success. They're finding that as they achieve and experience these things that they thought would bring them life, they're still empty. And so now they fill their evenings and weekends volunteering at different organizations. Why? Because they, they love? Because they, they're just filled with passion and compassion? Well, maybe. But I think more often than not, it's been identified even by the secular community as self-gratifying. It makes them feel that they are giving something back, that they have something of value, that they have meaning, that they have purpose. So it's not for God. It's not for His glory. It's not even so much for the people they're serving as much as it is for them to feel like, yeah, I've got all my stuff and now I can go home. I've, I've served at the, you know, at the soup kitchen. I've done something good for some poor people or some needy people. So their deeds and their motives were found deficient by God's standards. I'm reminded of of 1 Corinthians where Paul says that these things, these types of works would fall under the category of wood, hay, and stubble. These are things that are works of man or works of women but will be burned up in the final day as not being acceptable to God. Now Jesus goes on and he says that he wants them to remember. He said, wake up, strengthen what remains, and remember what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. What did he want them to remember? What they had received. What did they receive? They received the word of God. They received Jesus as Savior. They received the proclamation of the gospel. How did they hear it? They heard it from the apostles, from the disciples, from those who were followers of Jesus Christ. And John, Jesus speaking through John, says... Go back, remember, can you recall, can you, can you recollect in your personal Christian experience what it was like when you first received that love of Christ, 
when you knew your sins were forgiven and washed away, that the stain of, of ugliness, of wickedness, had been taken away by the blood of Christ. Do you remember the freedom? I, I remember it. I remember how when God came into my life at that point, I had such an incredible, intense love for other people that for the first time in my life wasn't motivated by my own self-gratification. So Jesus says, do you remember? Remember, go back. Remember your first love. Remember what it was like. Remember the things that you received and the things that you heard. And he says, obey. Obey it. Now, why would he say obey unless they were disobeying? The problem with the church of Sardis wasn't that they didn't have enough information or they didn't know the word of God. It's just that over time they'd kind of grown, oh, passive, lethargic, disinterested in obeying God because it didn't fit with their agenda. It didn't really fit with their plan in life. And yet, Jesus calls them to come back to obedience. Do you know what the purest expression of love for God is? Service. Laying down your life for others. No, it's not. Do you know what the purest expression of love for God is? Working in soup kitchens and preaching the gospel. No, it's not that either. According to John 14, 21, whoever loves me obeys me. It's interesting, there's a, the five love languages put together by Gary Smalley. Some of you may have heard of it. But we all experience love differently. Some, when you serve them, oh man, they're loving me. And you serve someone else and, and I don't really experience that as love. I want to hear them say, I love you, I love you, I love you. For another person, it's when they're given gifts. Everybody's different. And it's important if you're married to figure out what your spouse's love language is so that you're loving them in a way that's meaningful to them, not to you. In the same way, Jesus has a love language. Do you know how it is that we love him? We obey him. That's what he says. That's his love language. If you want to love God, it has nothing to do with your emotions or your feelings or what you're doing or not doing. What it has to do with is, are you obeying him? Are you doing the things that honor him? Are you pleasing him? And if you are, then that is love for God and love for Jesus and love for the Spirit. And he says, if you're not living this way, you must repent. In other words, if you're going a certain direction that's, that's not bringing fruit, that's not honoring God, that's not remembering what you've received and heard, Jesus says, wake up, turn back to the things that bring life and follow after me. Now, maybe there's some of you here today that need that loving stab in the front. Not just by Jesus, but by the presentation of of his word this morning. A reminder to wake up. Go back and remember the things that God had done in your life and what you received and his calling on your life. His design and desire for your life. And obey it. Respond. You know, I really believe the Holy Spirit is working this morning. I've been praying all week, as I, I do every week, that God would touch your hearts. I don't care if you've been a Christian five days or... 50 years that all of us the Lord is wanting to woo you into a deeper more intimate more loving relationship with him but he will not offend you he will not violate you he will not force you but he invites you and I encourage you to remember and obey and repent why is it so important? well we're told in the latter part of verse 3 
that if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. This is not good news. This is not Jesus coming for his church. This is not the second coming of Christ he's referencing. This is judgment coming. I was talking with a a friend on the beach yesterday. I was running down at Wailua Beach and working out and I I met somebody that I I had never met before but we became close friends quickly and and, I was sharing the gospel with him. In the course of sharing the gospel with him, I was, I was talking to him about my experience and that the, the difference between the non-Christian life and the Christian life. When I was not a Christian, what I found is that the front-end cost of being a non-Christian is almost zero. There's no cost in being a non-Christian. The cost of being a non-Christian is at the back end of the equation. On the back end, after I've sinned, after I've committed immorality, after I've done drugs or or been drunk or after I've lived those kind of lifestyles or been deceptive or been dishonest or any of these types of things, it's afterwards I pay the price. And I know so many people on this island who want to follow God and some who are kind of carnal Christians who who are wanting to do the right thing but they keep finding themselves sinning. And of course they're making the choices but that's where they are. And on the front end it's like no cost. But on the back end they're just getting beaten back, forth, left, right, every which direction. And I've seen people lose everything. I've seen them lose their families. I've seen them lose their income. I've seen them lose everything because of sin. Now, the Christian life is similar, except it's reversed. Well, as a Christian, the front end is incredibly expensive. It, you know what it requires? That you lay your life down and give up. And that your life now belongs to God. That is, that is costly. That's costly Christianity. But on the back end, there's nothing but blessing and riches and inheritance with Christ and things stored away in heaven for eternity. And there's a great abundance of life here in this life. So I was telling the the, the guy that I was talking to, which would you rather have? You want to go in with not much, not nothing down on the front and then have a terrible payment that you can never pay? Or would you rather pay a little something up front and then have an incredible return? And that's the way the Christian life is. And Jesus, in his love for the church, is saying, I am willing to stab you in the front to help you see that I want to bless you. I want to enrich you. I want you to experience eternal life. And I want you to be with me. I want to love you. I want to bless you. I want to guide you. But we have to be willing. And Jesus says, if they fail to wake up, he will come as a thief. And Aaron read the scripture so beautifully this morning. He says, watch, be on guard, be alert. If we let down our guard, if we become kind of captured and enraptured by the world, we'll be missing the purposes of God for our life. Now, there's a reward for those who respond to this very difficult and challenging message to the church of Sardis. There are four things that God is promising. He says, to those whose clothes remain unsoiled, or in other words, unstained by immorality or apostasy or idolatry, or in the case of Sardis, a group of people who were bragging about their filthy rags as if they were offering something of value to God. He says to those who overcome or or conquer or succeed or prevail or get the victory by the power of God, this is what awaits them. They will walk with me. Well, big deal. So what? Well, to fully understand the import of what that means, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. In the fall of man, you remember after they'd eaten the fruit in in disobedience to God, what was God doing in the cool of the day? Does anybody remember? He was walking. And what was he doing walking? 
Was he just going for, did he need exercise? Did he eat a few too many cream puffs uh, for lunch that afternoon? No. He was looking for Adam and Eve. Why? Because he wanted to have fellowship with them. But he couldn't find them because they were hiding because of their sin. You see, Jesus' intention, God's intention, from the very beginning is that you and I would have the honor and the privilege and the joy of walking with him. Not just walking with him spiritually like we do now with his spirit in us and but not being able to physically have contact, but God's design from the beginning was that you would be able to walk with him. He wants you to walk with him. I'm thinking to myself, if I wanted to go for a walk, I wouldn't pick me. I would pick somebody a lot better, a lot nicer, a lot more worthy than me. But God looks at you and you know what he says? He says, I want to walk with you. I want to be with you. I can't think of anybody else I'd rather be with than you. When the conclusion of all things takes place and Christ comes for his church, one of the rewards that he's going to give the church and he will give you individually if you respond to him is that he is going to take you in his hand and in his arm and you are going to go on the most unbelievable walks. You're going to have discussions about anything that you want to talk about. He's going to reveal himself to you. It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be everything that a vibrant, growing Christian could ever hope for. And Jesus promises that to those who will walk with Jesus. He also says that you'll be dressed in white. Now, white often referred and most often in Scripture refers to those who are cleansed of their sin. They've been, had their robes washed in the blood of Christ. Once our sins were like scarlet, but now through the blood of Christ they're like white as snow. And once we had filthy rags that were stench, there was a stench to God and even a stench to us. And God says, you've got to get rid of those filthy rags. I've got a beautiful, brilliant piece of clothing that I've designed just for you. And it's the righteousness of Christ. And so Jesus says for those that that will walk after him and that will respond to him and, and remember and wake up and go back to the things that they were doing at first and love him again, he says you will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's strictly by faith. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. You can't perform well enough to, to earn it. You can't purchase it. You can't find it. It's a gift. And it's received simply by faith and saying, Lord, I am a filthy rag. I have nothing to offer. But I receive the precious gift of Christ. And the Bible says if you've done that, that you will be clothed in the righteous white garments of Jesus Christ. The third thing that Jesus promises to, to a people or a church who responds is that you, your name will never be blotted out of the book of life. Now, the book of life is mentioned several times in Scripture. The first time is in Exodus where Moses is talking about, you know, he's kind of sacrificing himself and saying, look, blot my name out, but don't blot out the name of the people of Israel, your people, your chosen ones. But in Revelation, it's mentioned three or four times. There are two sets of books in the Bible. There are books, plural, that will be, be uh, open before the throne of God to judge the nations. It's going to be full of wickedness. It's going to be full of adulteries and fornications and immorality and idolatry and all kinds of, of evil. And when a person who is an unbeliever faces God, those books, plural, will be open before God. It's plural because there's going to be so much that one book won't take it. But the books will be open and a man or a woman will be judged based on that Performance. Of course, it's deficient because they don't have the white raiment of the righteousness of Christ. But the believer will be judged by one book, 
by the book of life, by the book of the Lamb of life, the Lamb's book of life. The Bible says there's only one criteria. It's not your performance, it's not your behavior, it's not what you did as a Christian or didn't do as a Christian. You know what it's based on? It's based on the finished work of Christ. Did you or did you not receive the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ? If you've received it, the Bible says that you're going to receive a warm welcome in heaven and that your name is recorded there and only those who, whose names are recorded in that book will be given access into heaven. And a very much a stab in the front again is that anyone whose name is not found written in the book of life will be thrown into a lake of fire. This is life and death. It's life and death for you, but it's life and death for your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers, your employees, whoever is around you. It's life and death. And we need to be a people who are strong enough and powerful enough in the spirit and the word that we are willing not to stab people in the back, but to stab them in the front and tell them the truth like Christ did in love, that they might have life, that they might not pay that horrendous expense on the back end of sin, but they might give themselves over that they might receive the riches of the inheritance in Christ. This word never, never, referring to never blotted out of the book of life, is the strongest negative term in the Greek language. It could be translated in this way. I will never, ever, under any circumstances, blot you out of the book of life. I don't know what kind of pen is used in heaven, but one thing I know, it's written with permanent ink. And when your name is recorded in the book of life, if you've genuinely been converted, the Bible says that you are a child, a son or a daughter of God. And that you have an absolute assurance that you will be saved. Now, as a pastor, I kind of hate this part of the scripture. I don't like it because it's much easier to kind of tell people, well, if you don't do this, you, you know, might lose salvation. Or if you don't do this, you might not really be blessed by God. And, you know, you, don't you want to be in heaven? Because, see, then I could motivate them, you know? But the Bible doesn't teach any such thing. The Bible says it's grace. And there's a great freedom. And it's up to you whether you use that freedom to continue in sin or you use that freedom to please and pleasure your Father who has paid the ultimate price that you might be delivered from the bondage of the enemy. The fourth thing that Jesus promises to those who overcome is that you will be acknowledged by Jesus before the Father and before His angels. Have you ever been to a party that you were invited to and you really didn't know very many people? I have. I've had that happen. And I go to an event and my wife isn't with me and I go in and and I not really greeted the host that invited me as busy doing something and cooking or whatever. And I walk in and all these people are kind of in groups. They seem to know each other. And I walk in and I'm like, uh, well, um, of course, I'm not saying this out loud, but I'm thinking, I wish I hadn't come. I wish I, I wish I could crawl under a rock or get behind somebody. I wish somebody would talk to me. And I'm a fairly extroverted person, so I just kind of jump in and meet people. But... There's a great difference if the host were to come to me, as I like to do with people that come to our church, and I see many of you do, is when we have a visitor, I get him right in my arm, and I meet him, and I talk to him, and I say, hey, let me introduce you to so-and-so or so-and-so. And so I take him right over, and I say, hey, Steve, this is Frank. Frank just has come from the, you know, the mainland, moved here, and, and I connect that person to Steve. And then another guy, and another guy. And all of a sudden, Frank feels like, man, I belong here. This is great. This is wonderful. Thank you for making me feel so welcome. Well, you see, the day is coming for someone who overcomes and follows Christ with a whole heart when Jesus is going to put his arm around you 
And despite your failures, despite your sin, despite the, the fact that we still deserve punishment apart from the work of Christ, Jesus himself before the throne of God is going to put his arm around you and say, this one is mine. Meet Bob. And the hall of heaven is going to go wild and the father is going to say, welcome home, son. And for women, the same thing. Karen, Sue, whoever you are, the Lord is going to put his arm around you and say, she's mine. Welcome her, would you? And all of heaven, you know, just explodes and, and the Father says, welcome home. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your salvation. <laughs> That's what the Lord has for those who overcome. That's what's awaiting you. It's worth every bit of sacrifice. The little bit on the front end that we as believers have to give up in order to be fruitful, in order to honor God, in order to be reproducing ourselves, in order to do the things that please God, are worthwhile because the Father and the Son and all of heaven is waiting for you. They're rooting for you. The Bible says Jesus is interceding for you day and night that you would do as well. I can't imagine anyone not wanting these things. If you've never received Christ, there are three things that, real simple things that you can do to initiate and begin and respond to this wonderful relationship that God is offering. The first thing is just acknowledge your sinfulness. I didn't have any problem doing that. I knew I, I was plagued with guilt. I, I was racked with you know, my own sense of failure. My own conscience, though unregenerate at that point, still told me all these things that I was doing were wrong. And it kept me awake at night. But the Bible says that we first must acknowledge that our need and acknowledge our sin or our rebellion or our wrongdoings. And the second thing is believe in my heart that God, that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross for my sins, that he took the penalty so that I wouldn't have to. And the third thing is to confess him. Acknowledge him. Just as he said in heaven, you know, if you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. If you acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you in heaven before the angels, before the heavenly hosts. But if you refuse to acknowledge me before men, if we're afraid to tell people about this wonderful relationship with God because they might think we're strange or roll our eyes or whatever, Jesus says, I will not acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. Oh, another one of those stabs in the front. But the answer is not to be grieved by that, but to respond and say, I want to be vocal about Christ. I want to confess him. So if you've never done that before, today can be your day. It's just a matter of, on the front end is giving your life to God and saying, boy, you know, on the outside, I seem like I've got it together. On the outside, people around me think I've got it together, my life financially, and I've got a nice family, I've got kids, I've got the boat, I got, you know, i got all this stuff, but I'm dying inside. Can somebody help me? Can somebody teach me and show me where real life is? And the answer is yes. Jesus has already come to show you where real life is. And all it means is that you need to acknowledge him, to believe in him, and to confess him. And he can change the deadness of your heart and bring that life that you've been looking for and longing for all of these years. Now, I know that many of you are Christians here today. And I don't want to stab you any more than I have to. But I'll stab you one more time in the front and say, the Lord has a plan for your life. He's got a purpose for you. And the words of Jesus, though given to a dead church of Sardis, I think we can still learn from. He says, wake up. 
Be vigilant in your Christian life. He says, strengthen what remains. The things that are, are kind of at a low ebb in your life spiritually, go back to those things. Remember what you received and what you heard and how you heard it and obey it and repent of anything that would be dishonoring to God and then live full on for Christ because the reward not only in this life but in the life to come is out of this world. It's incomparable and God wants you to have every single bit of it. Don't you want it? I want it in the worst way. Let's pray and ask that God would give us a heart to receive it. Father, we come to you this morning and we want to be as this church could have been, the church that you called them to be. And we want to respond to the very last verse in this passage that says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. God, give us that kind of a heart that says, Oh, I have an ear. Not only do I have an ear, but I have a heart to respond. And Father, help me to see what I'm really like, not like I wish I were or how I would like to be perceived or how I would like others to see me, but Father, as much as it hurts, show me the truth. Stab me in the front that I might be transformed and changed into the image of your Son. Father, I thank you for these men and women and these young people that are here today. And God, I pray that you would fill them with your Spirit and that you would fill them with a hunger for your Word. And Father, that they would be fruitful, a living, vibrant organism alive with Christ and the power of God and reproductive in their Christian life, fulfilling the mission you've given them. And God, we know that we can't do it without you, so we surrender ourselves afresh. Even as Paul said daily, we've got to die. Jesus himself said, if you want to follow after me, you must deny yourself daily. Pick up your cross and follow me. And so, Father, once again, the front end is hard, it's difficult, but it's, it's rewarded by an incredible return. And so, God, we go the way, not of the world, but the way of your Spirit as you speak to us through this church that had so many things wrong and yet you wanted to breathe life back into them. Breathe life back into us, Lord. Give us everything that we need that we might bring glory and honor and praise to your name that we might walk with you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.